of New York.
Nevertheless, he has brought a whole new dimension to the art of performing in public. Uh, as you know, Mr. Kroc owns the San Diego uh, ball team, the Padres. And you know how we bought the Padres, don't you? I, you know, I, I, funny thing, I saw a piece in the paper about Mr. Kroc. You know, he he was you know he wasn't rich or anything. Uh, till 1966, all of a sudden he hit it big, Rooney. Whoa, the big old jackpot! And the clouds were squirting dollar bills, the ten dollar bills, fifty dollar bills. And by 1968, Mr. Croc was up to his knees in bonds and in stocks and in billions of dollars. And of course, by 1974, he's already a sated gentleman. You know, he's walking around, and one day he's sitting in this living room and he says to his wife i'm telling you actually what happened he said say uh say uh myrtle what would you say if i bought a ball team he was just reading in the paper you know about baseball he would just say and i've always liked baseball and she says well if that would make you feel happy ray i certainly wouldn't stand in your way you're not, you're not going to play now are you you're a little old for that you know you're over 70 now oh no no i i don't uh, i'm not going to play i just want to buy one you know i love baseball, and uh, and I, I, I think I can do some good for the game and have a lot of fun. It's a hobby. It's actually what he bought a ball team for a hobby, see? Well, uh, at that point, it uh, had, a, had a big piece at the end of the piece about how great Mr. Croc was going to be to the ball players, and he made statements that he's going to treat the ball players like the artists that they are, and, and that he believes that uh, baseball uh, could use uh, uh, benevolent uh, ownership. Mr. Croc uh, broke new ground somewhere around the fifth inning in a game that the San Diego Padres were struggling through, apparently ineptly, and incidentally for your benefit, if you're not a baseball fan, the San Diego Padres are in the league only by uh, dint of uh, expansion and by, let's put it this way, by humanity, uh, compassion. Uh, this is a, this is a club that in uh, in normal days would be playing roughly in the Sally League, if that. Uh, that used to be a fast league, by the way. So, uh, nevertheless, uh, it, it, halfway through roughly the fifth inning, Mr. Croc, uh, after observing his club, boot a couple, uh, throw a couple of throws into the uh, into the upper deck while they were trying to get a guy out at first, missed three consecutive bunts, picked off a first twice. Uh, he's had enough. The season is only about a week old, you know. So he rushes down to the press box, grabs a hold of the PA system microphone, turns it on, and says to the assembled multitudes, and there were a lot of people out there, apparently they were giving away free uh, quarter pounders or something. Uh, anyway, he gets on the microphone and he says the following. Uh, uh, your attention, please. Your attention, please. This is Mr. Croc who owns this bunch of ball players, and I want to tell you this: I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed to say that I own the San Diego Padres, and I have never seen such stupid baseball in my whole life. You guys are playing stupid. I've seen better baseball played at the Fat Man Skinny Man picnic game at my McDonald's hamburger stand. That was really stupid baseball, and I want to apologize to all the fans that are here tonight. Oh, wow, what a bunch of stupid ball players! Boo! Well, now, that certainly caused a little excitement. Uh, the audience is sitting out there, and they heard the, the rank, honest truth suddenly come out of the PA system. And this is not often done. A truth is hidden behind a great obfuscation 
of uh, torn ligaments, uh, pitchers who developed a bad arm just a week before the, uh, the, the, the season started. Uh, and if McCovey had only get his, uh, the use of his right leg back, it would be all right. But uh, never the truth. Never the truth. Now, this is liable to open up a whole new world of, let's say, uh, let's say on-the-spot commentating by those in power. For example, what if, uh, it's, it's really, it's, it could very well happen. You, you understand that uh, every Broadway season, there are at least 34 turkeys that go down in flames by the end of the second scene, not the second act, the second scene. Well, how does the producer feel about this? Well, pretty rotten, I can tell you. <laughs> so I can just see halfway through the second scene of a, of, a, of a giant turkey that has just come in to New York after playing for 1,700 weeks in Boston while teams of play doctors were flown in trying to make it look literate at least. Uh, and uh, I could just see it happen. All of a sudden, uh, your attention, please, uh, audience. Uh, this is David Merrick. I produced this turkey, and I want to say to you, Jason Robards, you read that line stupid. That was an absolutely stupid reading. In fact, I know several kids in eighth grade who could have read it better than that, and I don't know who the hell designed that set. That set looks like the interior of a Pullman car in 1922 that's been in a junkyard for 30 years. Now, I'm very, very sorry about this. Well, all of you people have paid good money to see this clam bake, and I want to tell you, all I can say is that I'm David Merrick and produced it, and I want to apologize to all of you, and it's stupid. All right, Robards, go on with the play if you can. Well, now, I'll tell you. <laughs> I could see Clyde Barnes suddenly said, he'd think that was a, you know, he'd think that was a, a, a magic stroke by the playwright. He'd say, you know, theater broke new ground last night. When a subplot developed, when the rancorous, screaming, yelling voice of David Merrick could be heard off stage arguing with the stage manager about what the hell are they going to do about the unions this time? Well, this... <laughs> oh, you, I could see other ones. You know, you're sitting there watching Channel 2 news, you know? You're sitting there, Walter Cronkite's on, and uh, Cronkite's doing his stuff, when all of a sudden a voiceover comes on. Uh, your attention, please. Your attention, please. This is uh, Mr. Paley, who owns this network. And I want to tell you, okay, can you hear me, Eric Severide? Are you listening? Is that button in your ear turned on? Well, I want to tell you, that was a stupid remark you made. And furthermore, if you can't think of anything rottener to say about Nixon, you better be looking for another job. That was stupid. Everybody in his right mind knows that Nixon is not a good country-western piano player. And if that's the best rotten thing you can say about him tonight, buddy, that was absolutely the lowest. All right, get on with the news, will you guys? Great Scott. Oh, yes, put your hand over your heart, buddy. Take off your hat and look up into the sky, face the west, and sing the anthem. I say something you'll own. Get a little guts into it. Sooner or later, you'll own generals. Voila. For 60 years, General Tire has been one of the nation's leading tire manufacturers. But General Tire means more than tires. Their one-stop car care centers are staffed by experts who know how to take care of that clunker of yours. Whether it's wheel alignment, wheel balance, lube, an oil change, mufflers, shock absorbers, braquets, or batteries, you get fast, dependable, up-to-date service using only name brand parts and materials. 
and your car gets a free seven-point safety check too. Best of all, it's priced right. So sing it out. Sooner or later, you'll own Generals. Very, very sacrilegious tonight. Have you noticed that? Well, I guess it's uh, that PA thing uh, shook me down to the uh, to the handlebars. You know, speaking of PAs, uh, I think I think the the bullhorn uh, and the PA have uh, brought upon a a curse upon mankind, which uh, we are we haven't seen the end yet. We've not seen the end. Uh, you just put uh, thirty watts of audio in, in a guy's hand with a big horn pointing at all the other people. And his psychology, his personality changes instantly. Oh, yes. One of the great moments that I've had in my time. You know, when you when you perform, uh, like say I'm performing here tonight, uh, this is what I'm doing. When you perform on television, even when you perform on the stage, you don't get quite the same sense, curiously enough, of power as when you have a giant PA system at your command. Now, I don't know why that is. Somebody's got to write a paper on that. Maybe, uh, yeah, well, uh, yeah, but you can also perform in Yankee Stadium and still don't have the kind of power or the feeling of power. And I have. I've performed in Yankee Stadium. But you don't have the sense of power that you have when you sit there with this, uh, this uh, crystal mic and you've got to push the talk switch and you're in the same stadium. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, one time I had, a, I had a great thing happen to me. It was a really great thing. I look back on it with great excitement, even to this day. Uh, I was uh, I, w I had a television show and everything. This was uh, when I was going to college, and I was out in the Midwest. In fact, I was in Cincinnati, and uh, there's a friend of mine who was involved with the Cincinnati Reds. He was the, uh, involved with the promotion department or something with the Reds, and I used to go out to the ballpark all the time, and I'd, I'd watch the Reds play. This was in Crosley Field. It was a really exciting field, and it was very intimate. Uh, you could, you could, you could almost, uh, you know, you could hear the ball players when the guy's up at bat, you know, and he takes a cut at the ball. You were so close to him, you could hear him, <clears throat> you'd hear the grunt, you know, and uh, if he really took a big cut, you know, and missed, you'd get sprayed with sweat if you're sitting back at second base or something, you know, back at first base, you know, you just, you just, you know, you're really part of the game. So uh, they used to have these fantastic crowds at night games there. They really draw them. And, uh, you know, speaking of uh, of the Cincinnati ballpark. One of the best hit balls I ever saw in my life. One of the most sensational home runs. You know, we're all talking about home runs today because of Hank Aaron. And one of the really fantastic shots that I've ever seen in my life was hit by the New York Mets baseball announcer, Ralph Kiner. For any of you who never saw Kiner hit a ball, oh, wow, he really... You know, now, now Aaron, Aaron hits, a, you know, he hits home runs, but his home runs are really unspectacular. He's just got that beautiful swing, and he just, you know, popped these line drives right over the fence, you know. But he doesn't hit the, the, the long, vicious, uh, murderous, tape measure type. The really, the, the really, uh, you know, the kind that, that, that send pitchers slinky, slinking back to Indianapolis <laughs> or, or the three-eye lead. Or even worse, back to the used car lot from whence they sprang. But I saw one night, one night, the uh, Cincinnati Reds were playing the Pittsburgh Pirates. Now, you know that uh, Mr. Kiner played with the Pirates. Okay. And so uh, Mr. Kiner is out there, 
Uh, this was near the end of his career, you see. But uh, that did not stop his viciousness. No way. So uh, he came up to bat, and uh, there'd been a lot of haggling and hassling going on between the teams. Was, these two teams are deadly rivals. Interesting. Uh, most people out in the East don't know that the, the Pirates and the Reds have been battling each other for years as a curious kind of, of a personal rivalry. If you've ever read the book by uh, oh, the, the relief pitcher, Brosnan, Jim Brosnan, he said that uh, his great line, he says, you can hardly lose in Philadelphia, but you hardly ever win in Pittsburgh, <laughs> which, which uh, he was talking about Pittsburgh, that, that strange rivalry. See, so on this night, Pittsburgh, I don't know why I got started on baseball. This is not a show about baseball tonight, so you can come back, ladies. Uh, I won't be with it long. But uh, it's kind of great to see what this guy did this night. Uh, they were they were going into about the eighth inning, see, and, and it was a pretty tough game. And one of the Reds' top pitchers was out there hurling, and he was he was holding them down. He was holding them really tight. And uh, one of the better pitchers for the Pittsburgh Clint, they've had good pitchers in Pittsburgh, uh, was was throwing a good game too. Well, this game was tight and it was getting mean. There were a couple of brisk uh, near fist fights at second base when guys slid in hard. And uh, you could hear it, you know, drifting out. The words would come up. And uh, there, was a, there was a scene at third base when a guy jumped up after he thought he was tagged too hard. Guy came sliding into third, and Grady Hafner, somebody for the Reds, laid a real mean tag on him. And he got up, and he starts to, you know, he makes a jump, and immediately the coach grabs him, the third base coach, and pulls him back. So, you know, a little touch and go there all the way through. It was a, kind of a nasty night. And it was hot, you know, it was one of those hot Cincinnati nights, getting hotter by the minute, and you could smell the river. The place is packed all the way to the gunnels. When up comes Ralph Kiner. Give you a brass fig leggie with bronze oak leaf palm if you could tell me what number Mr. Kiner wore. And incidentally, his number has been retired by the Pirates. He's a good ball player, you know. He should be in the... That guy should be in the Hall of Fame if anybody should be, you know. That's a great shame that they keep voting these cockamamie ballplayers in the Hall of Fame and Ralph Kiner ain't. But anyway, Kiner, Kiner, he gets a lot of votes, but never enough. Kiner steps up to the plate, and uh, Kiner would wear his hat very low when he played. Very low, dark low. And he had a, in those days, he was a lot lighter than he is now. He, uh, he had the, a hatchet face. He looked menacing at the plate. And wide shoulders, narrow waist. And uh, he steps up to the plate this night. He, he taps his spikes a couple of times and uh, kicks it there a little bit and walks around and puts some dust on his hands and, and uh, rubs up the pine tar in the bat. And he, uh, he steps into the box. Well, the pitcher looks down at him, saying, this guy gives us. And by the way, this pitcher was legendary. This pitcher winds up. He was something else. When he, when he decided to dust you off, man, you were dusted for maybe a month. Uh, he took all the dust out of the back of your pants. This guy, oh, he really dusted you. And he, he had this wide, sweeping delivery. So he winds up, and he lets one go. Well, Kiner ducked. He ducked so fast that his hat was still hanging in the air right at the place where he was batting. By the time he hit the ground, his helmet flies off, and down he goes. You know. And he gets up again, you know, and he walks around out of the box, and he spits a couple of times, and picks up his bat and steps in. Well, at this point, it was very dramatic, because everybody's, th you know, he's, he's throwing it, kind of, you see. Well, the guy winds up and, and 
And he lets his sweeping delivery go. He throws his fastball, and it was smoke, man. This guy had a fastball that literally did smoke. You'd see a thin stream of contrail behind the ball when he let it go. You know, zap, he throws that fastball in. Well, Kiner hit that ball right where it should have been hit. I mean, he, and, it, and what was great is it was a good pitch. It was on, on the inside corner low, and Kiner just caught it just the way it should have been caught. He just, he had that great sweeping swing, and he caught it, and everybody in the stands heard the sound of that bat hitting that ball. It was the most ringing crack, you know, just pop, just like that in that, in that auditorium, that, that, sorry, just, uh, a sports arena. It was hot. That ball, I've never seen a ball hit like that. That ball went out so fast, so hard, out. And when I mean out, I mean out of the park. So fast and so hard that the ball was climbing as it went over the left field fence. Climbing. And I mean it was climbing. Now, everybody could see it. I was sitting in the upper deck right back of home plate. Right in, the, in fact, in the, in the press box when this was hit. He hit the ball right up. It went pow, right up over the, over the wall. So fast, the, the, the outfielder, the left fielder for the Reds, was still standing. It didn't move. It just went over his head so quick that the ball hit across the street, way across the, the uh, there, was a, there was a bus line, a big street out there. It hit a big, well, it was a, 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 like a, a warehouse and a laundry over there. Hit the laundry sign. Now, that was a shot. I mean, it was a, talk about a behemoth of a shot. But it was so vicious. You know, it wasn't one of those high archy tape measure jobs. This hit the sign out there. It all seemed to happen all at once. He went, bam, and then went, bam, hit the sign out there, and bam, it hit so hard that the ball bounced way up in the air. You could see it in the light out there, over the street, and halfway back to third base. Well, it, it all would happen so fast that the third baseman, he didn't know what the hell happened. He saw the ball bouncing out in the, in the short outfield there. So he ran, he, he leaped on the ball, you know. He throws it to second. And Kiner, of course, is just chugging around. And he threw it to second, trying to get him up at second base. And the third baseman knew what was going on. And the crowd sat for a second, stunned, because they had seen for the first time how a ball really could be hit. I mean, not only a good swing behind it, but viciousness is behind it. Oh, <laughs> that was Kiner. Well, uh, I, in that very ballpark, you know, talk about PA systems. I had a great night one time, one night there, that uh, I got a call from my friend that afternoon. So he says, uh, he says, hey, you coming to the ballpark tonight? And I said, uh, yeah, this guy was in the PA, or rather in the publicity department of the Reds. And he calls me and says, yeah, he says, come on down. He says, I'll see you in a press box. So I came down to the ballpark about 15 minutes before the game. You know, I just sort of wander in. He said, I got a surprise for you. I said, what's your surprise, Lee? He says, well, I got a really great surprise. He says, how would you like to do the PA announcing tonight? I said, well, <laughs> yeah, you know, great, see? And, and, uh, and, and so, so he, gave me, he gave me this, uh, you know, I had a clipboard, see, with this big lineup and all that, and there's a telephone where you talk down to the, dugout and all that stuff, and they call you up, and, and uh, their, their, their uh, announcement, the announcements of that, at that time were not made from down on the field, but were made from a little separate box next to the press box, but lower. And, and so I got this pair of earphones, see, with it, which were connected right to the dugout, and I'd get the call up there from whoever was down there. I guess it was the, 
one of the managers, assistant manager, somebody would call up, and I had the the, uh, the lineup. And here was a crowd, you know, they were packed right to the gun. And uh, and I remember the, the great thrill it was to say, yeah, oh, of course, of course. And uh, the great thrill it was to, as this guy comes striding up to the plate, you know, this guy's sleeves cut off, see, and I say, and now batting number four in the fourth position, cleanup hitter for the Cincinnati Reds, playing first base, Big Ted Klususki. Wow. <laughs> Do you ever hear of him? <laughs> Who hasn't? Uh, he had arms roughly the size of, uh, I would say, roughly the size of, uh, of uh, small elephant feet. Oh, what a fantastic pair. Oh, yeah. He was you know, a very easygoing guy, but wow-wee. He was another guy that could hit a ball, say, from here to Staten Island and back. And he'd get a slice on the ball. That was so fascinating. He'd hit a ball, really a hard shot that looked like it's going out to, to right center field. And it gets about halfway out to right center field and starts to curve. And by the time it goes over the fence, 400 feet over the top of the outfielder's fence, it is 20 feet foul. Used to hit an unbelievable hook. <laughs> I don't know how many home runs this guy would have got had he straightened this, you know, straightened it out. But uh, uh, here I'm sitting up there at the PA. So you want to hear about the PA system, of course. I'm sitting up at the PA system, see. And uh, every time I would look forward, see, every time I'd hear the uh, the the guy say, uh, "We're putting in a change." So you got to say things then that you didn't that you didn't get to say ordinarily. And I would say things like, uh, for example, one of the things I said that, what was his name? He was pitching. Oh, yes, yeah. And now, coming in to pitch from the bullpen, number 23, Howie Fox. Number 23, now pitching, Howie Fox. Did you ever hear of him? <laughs> and, uh, and, and they, oh, yes, another guy that I, uh, that, that, uh, I, I announced that night. Uh, he came in, too. I came into the ninth inning. Said, uh, uh, your attention, please. Your attention, please. Now pitching for the Cincinnati Reds, number 21, Jim Nuxhall. Number 21, Jim Nuxhall, now pitching for the Cincinnati Reds. Did you ever hear that name? Joe. Joe Nuxhall. That's right, Joe Nuxhall. Yeah, that's right. And then there was another one that... Uh, that uh, was always coming in. Uh, no, this was a relief pitcher. He was always coming in. Oh, oh, uh, uh, oh. Gosh, it's on the tip of my tongue. I can see the way he walked and everything. This guy had come in, shuffling it. Uh, uh, Herman. Herm. Herm. Something. Oh, yeah. And now, pitching for the Cincinnati Reds, number 15. Herman Waymeyer, number 15, Herm Waymeyer. Did you ever hear that name? <laughs> oh, it's a, uh, to speak in the PA system, oh, one great night then, uh, speaking of PA systems, and uh, I was such a hit that night, see, everybody says, gee, you were really great, you, you, had the, you have the right pompous sound, so you have to get the right pause and inflection on these things. A couple of weeks later, this same guy called me. See, he was a he was a local PR guy who did other stuff in addition to the baseball clubs. He was all involved with sports, and so uh, he called me uh, 
He called me one night. He says, hey, he says, listen, you were great on the PA system. And I said, well, thank you. He said, uh, you know, not everybody can do that. I said, well, of course, I understand that. He said, uh, I've got a great job for you tonight. He says, I'll meet you at the Old South Restaurant, okay? At 6 o'clock. Don't be late. Oh, yeah. Well, you wanted to hear what happened at night in a PA, right? Uh, you don't have to set it up right away. I was sorry. Just get it set. In the, you have to set it in the middle there. It's okay. So anyway, that night, I, I'm all excited. See, because I, I enjoyed this PA thing. In a, in a, in a nutty way, it's... Uh, it's uh, well, of course the excitement of television and radio is a little different. It's very different, but PA announcing has its own curious uh, charm. And did you know that today there are guys whose only uh, they're specialists. Uh, their only their only talent, uh, and it's a good one in, in its own way, is appearing as a PA announcer at various big events, and they make the event seem more exciting. Did you know that? Well, I, I ran into that that night. It was 6 o'clock. I showed up at the Old South Sea, and there's my buddy Lee. He says, I got my car down at the garage. He says, get ready. We're going out. I said, where are we going, Lee? There's no ball game tonight. He said, that's right. There's no ball game. That's why I'm working on this thing tonight. He says, don't ask any questions. And so we get in his car, and we drive out. We're going out in the country. And I see there's thousands of other cars going in this direction. It's... It's nighttime. It's about 7.30, and it's dark. We've had dinner, you know. And uh, there's a sort of a uh, suppressed excitement in the air. And then I see where we're going. We're going to the racetrack. There was a racetrack out there, and what do you think I was to announce that night? Well, I'll give you a little example. I'll give you a little example. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we're ready for the second sprint of the evening. And it looks like it's going to be a red-hot sprint. After that first sprint we had tonight, the boys are really going after the big money tonight, and they're not messing around. Uh, the car that won the first sprint is now lined up in the pole position. Larry Evans, number 64, in the Offenhauser Curtis Craft Special. Let's give him a big hand. He's lining up now. He's taking his practice lap, and he'll be lining up at the pole position now. Larry Evans, number 64, in his dark blue Offenhauser Curtis Cross Special. Let's give Larry a big hand. He drove one hell of a sprint there in that first run. Let's give Larry a hand. You ever heard guys do that? That's right. And uh, then, of course, you, you describe the race as it goes, see. Uh, it, it, it opens up, see. And you say, all right, now here they come. They're coming down the street. They're just about to take the green flag, and they're off. They got the green flag, and now they're going into the first turn. Larry Evans is leading, and his big number 64 up. And look at Bobby Allison coming up. He's coming up fast on the outside. Oh, look out there. He might lose it. And now they're going into the back stretch, ladies and gentlemen. These boys are really driving for all out tonight. The money is on the line, and the points are piling up. And now, oh, oh there's a little action there in the back stretch. Yes, uh, excuse me one minute, please. I'll get the information on it. There's a car that seems to be in trouble on the back stretch. It is number 64, Larry Evans. Looks like he spun on the wall out there. Tough luck, Larry. We hope he's all right out there, ladies and gentlemen. Bobby Allison is now coming. And now they come into the stretch again. It's number 7, 14, 22, and 38. Number 38 is coming up fast. It's another Offenhauser driven by Johnny Parson. It's coming up there. Wow, we. <laughs> you didn't know I'd know how to do that, did you? 
Well, I'll tell you. See, oh, yeah, these guys make the race. I mean, it's just, even if they're all driving around at their 5, 10 miles an hour, you know, it looks like any minute now it's going to break into a Ben-Hur chariot race. <laughs> and, uh, so I had a fantastic time that night. And the dust is rising. See, and I said to him, he says, how come I got this? He said, well, the guy that, the guy that usually does it tonight says he's just got a call. I said, what kind of a call again? He said, we've just got a call from the coast. They're going to they're gonna do some big USAC events out there. And uh, they're auditioning him out there tonight. And I said, you mean to tell me they are? Yeah, he says, oh, yeah. He says, he's big-time racetrack announcers travel around the country. And he's going into the big time, yeah. And he says, you're filling in for him tonight. He says, great. And I sat there. And, of course, the crowd would yell at you. You're right up in the open there when you're doing that thing. And the dust is rising. And, then, of course, you always like to say this, you know, that this is the great moment. And now, number seven is coming down the home stretch. It looks like he's going to take the checkered flag. Yes, Lily Evans in his orphan house is coming down. He's taking the third split tonight in a row. Larry Evans is taking the checkered flag. Let's give him a big hand. His official time was three minutes and 41.005 seconds. He averaged 97.9807 miles per hour. A real drive, and in fact, it's sets a new track record. Let's give Larry a big hand.